Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, we'll continue in, in our study of 1 Peter that we started a few weeks ago. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 10 through 12 this morning. This is one long sentence in the Greek. What, he read to you, what we read this morning is from 3 to 12 is one long sentence. And we've broken it down. It breaks up nicely into three sections. And we've considered the first two. And today we come to this third section. Let me read it to you. Verse 10 through 12 one more time. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ would then them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which, into which the angels long to look. I was reminded this past week of a preacher that I really have learned a lot from and that was Martin Lloyd-Jones. I have read numerous commentaries that he has written and books he has written over the years, and he's had a great influence in my life. And he uh, was a Bible expositor in the, in the 1900s. He, he died in the 1981, maybe, sometime around there. But there's a phrase that he used often, and the phrase went like this, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Lost in wonder, love and praised. And what he said was, I hope that my preaching would help Christians to be gripped as they respond to biblical truth. He said, Lord, help me when I preach and be lost in the wonder, love, and praise. A certain awe about the Word of God. And I have to confess to you that there are many times I get up to preach and I do not have wonder, love, and praise. I have to say that because there are many times I do not. And a love and wonder and praise for the things I'm saying or the things that I'm studying. He, I, heard, I heard a pastor say, we have a dangerous calling as pastors. Uh, we're always at the risk of just using the Bible as a tool to crank out a sermon. And that's true, that, that can happen so easily have to guard yourself against that, that it's not just purely academic. And I'm sure you get like that as well, that when you read the Bible or you come to church and you listen to a sermon, that you don't have or you don't get lost in the wonder, love, and praise of what's being said either. That's a danger for all of us. I think that's what Peter's trying to do in the opening verses of 1 Peter. He's trying to get his persecuted readers to have a, a wonder, a love and praise for the gospel. Get, get excited about these things. Make it so contagious that when people see you, they say, what's with you? And, and oh, you're a Christian. Oh, what does that mean? Make it so contagious that people are affected by the fact that this gospel, this message of salvation is so awe-inspiring and so wonderful. The word wonder is, means a feeling of being surprised, mingled with admiration, caused by something beautiful and inexplicable. 
It happens when we marvel or stand in awe of something or something. It fuels our faith in Christ and it fuels our worship. And like I said, it makes our faith contagious. And perhaps you've lost that sense of wonder for the gospel. Perhaps you've forgotten from what you were saved from. And that's what Peter's reminding them of in this long 12, excuse me, nine verses, 10 verses in the opening of 1 Peter. Perhaps you're not as enthusiastic about coming to church as you used to be and gathering physically in this place uh, like you used to be, engaging with God's people like you used to be. Perhaps you don't, aren't as enthused about singing the songs that we sing as you used to be. We can get like that. We, it's so easy, and John in Revelation says we can leave our first love so easily. And passion for Christ can get diminished, and we have to continually come back and, and say, God, revive my heart to God. Make these things fresh and exciting and meaningful to me as they are, not just, just some emotional thing, but make them so alive to me and and so meaningful to my soul. And, and what do you do, you know, when people are being persecuted? What does Peter do here? He, he's going to tell them eventually how you live in the midst of all this, the practical side of it. But before he even gets there, he just starts out with this, just this huge doxology and praise to God for the gospel. The fact that you, a sinner, that God would show mercy and choose you before the foundation of the world and, and then he would give you a salvation that's preserved for you that you can never lose. That no matter how bad the circumstances around you get, you, you can never lose this preserved, uh, reserved gospel place in heaven that he's given to you. A lot of your other things may be taken away, readers, the readers. A lot of things may be taken away from you. But the reality is, this is one thing that can never be taken away from you. This, this message of salvation that's been preached to you. He wants them to be revived about that and excited about that once again. And not be like our tendency can be so easily. It's just to get bored with it. Or the circumstances can somehow quench out the joy of it. And we forget. Sometimes the gospel is all you have to hold on to. Sometimes your salvation is all you had to hold on to. That's all that's left. And for them, he says, that's the most meaningful thing about you. That's, this is kind of your identity. He's kind of giving them their identity in this passage about who they are. You belong to Christ. You're secure in Christ. Even when you have trials, there's a purpose in them and God's using them to strengthen you in the midst of them. It's, it's not there without purpose or without meaning. They have meaning and purpose. He's trying to give them their identity. You know how it is when you, um, when you want to teach your children some things about their, their, their heritage and you'll show them these are pictures of your grandma and your grandpa and your aunt and uncle and your great aunt and your great uncle and all of that and then, and then this is your family now and, and someday you'll have a family and you just want to, say, you want to show them where they fit, where they fit in the big scheme of things. And that's what Peter's doing here, showing them where they fit, especially the verses we're looking at today. You're, you're in a line of, of truth tellers. You're in a line of, uh, of others who have come, prophets and, and evangelists and apostles who have come before you with the same message and they were preaching the same message and they were suffering for it, just like you're suffering. 
But they did it for you, and you need to do it for the next generation. And that's kind of what their identity is, that you're part of a long line of, of others who kept passing the baton. And you see that in these verses. The prophets told about it. Someone told you about it. And the, the, even the angels are excited about this message. They just long to look into it. So Peter is taking this word salvation in these opening verses, and it's kind of like he's taking a, 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 a fine gem, and he keeps turning at all different angles and saying, oh, this is another thought about it, or here's another thought about it, or don't forget this about the gospel, don't forget that. I mean, he's showing all the different aspects of what the gospel is to try to encourage them, to start this letter out just encouraging them and who they are before he instructs them on what they should be doing. Because he's going to tell them in verses 13 and following, how shall we then live in the midst of these, this, these difficult times? But before we even start there, he says, I want you to know who you are in Christ. I want you to know about your gospel, this message of salvation. I want you to know who you are and what you have and, and all the riches of that. And I, I want you to understand your, your identity in that. And I want you to know where, you, where it's come from and where it's to go. And I want you to understand that others have suffered too. And there's others who have continually suffered throughout history for this message. You're not the first. And so that's how he has began this letter. You are incredibly privileged. You are very privileged. He's going to tell them, he's going to say, these Old Testament prophets, they would give anything to trade places with you. They prophesied about things they never got to see fulfilled. You're getting to live the very things they prophesied about. You're getting to live out and live in the midst of it. They only prophesied and told about it, but they didn't know the details. You're living on the other side of the cross, and you're able to see the details, and you're, you're, you're privileged compared to them. Even the angels get excited about it. Why can't you get excited about it? The angels get excited about this gospel message. Should not the recipients of it get just as excited as those who can never experience it themselves? And that's what he's doing here in these verses. That's sort of a kind of little overview of, of what these verses are about. And so he gets, comes, to, comes to verse 10 and 11. Let me just read that to you again. He talks about people who played a role in bringing it to us. These spirit-inspired prophets, as to, the, to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You know what a prophet is? A prophet is a spokesman for God. A prophet speaks God's words, God's message. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the people did not want to hear God's voice. They were scared to death when they heard God's voice through the mountain. And so they said, we don't want to hear God's voice. Speak through Moses. And that's the beginning of the prophets right there. God's messenger speaking his message. A prophet had to speak exactly what God wanted spoken. No matter what kind of response he got from the people, that didn't matter. And usually the people didn't like what they heard. 
but he still spoke God's message. People don't always like what God has to say, but you speak it anyway. They were to declare divine revelation and to be a mouthpiece to predict the future and also to speak to and to just pass on or write down whatever they heard. Look in Daniel chapter 7. Keep your hand there in 1 Peter, but flip over to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is a good example of this. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 15, Daniel was a prophet. Ezekiel was a prophet. Isaiah was a prophet. The minor prophets, all these prophets of the Old Testament. But Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 15, says this, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. He, he's getting messages from God. This is what a prophet would do, get messages from God. I approached, verse 16, one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Then go to chapter 8, verse 27. <clears throat> And then I, Daniel, verse 27 of chapter 8, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. That's what this all did to him. It just shook him up so badly. And then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. They would get these visions and messages from God, and they did not understand them. They did not understand always the meaning of them. But they just knew there were messages from God, and they would write them down. Look in verse, go to chapter 12, verse 8. Chapter 12, verse 8. As for me, I heard but could not understand, so I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And so there you go. Just, I, they were making inquiry. They were asking God. They were asking and trying to find out the meaning of these things. It's almost like they had a veil to, 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 to the true understanding of everything. They just knew the message, but they didn't always know the meaning of the message. They didn't know who these things were about, necessarily. Go to, uh, it says he searched in inquiry. He made careful search. That's what Peter says. These prophets made careful search. And they... They wanted to know what they meant, and they wanted to make investigation. It's like the word is like trying to find the answer to a riddle. The idea is also the inquiry and the searching is the idea of a lion following the scent of its prey. They wanted to know so badly what these things meant that they were, that were, they were saying and, and, and these visions they were having and these things they were writing down. They would even compare notes with each other. Go back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Artaxerxes of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. See, he, what he's doing, he's, he's searching, he's wanting to know, and he even gets the words that were given to another prophet, Jeremiah, to understand things that he's seeing and hearing. So they would compare notes with each other. And so he goes to the book of Jeremiah. And in the book of Jeremiah, he reads this about the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem. We're going to be 70 years. 
We're going to be in captivity for 70 years. So Daniel knows, he says, I've got, we're getting close to the end of that period of time of 70 years. And so he says, I began to pay attention to the Lord God and seek him in prayer and supplications with sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel is studying. He finds out the captivity is for 70 years from the writings of Jeremiah. He starts praying about returning back to the land out of exile. And then he gets this answer to his prayer in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which is the most incredible prophecy in the entire Bible concerning the date and time of when Christ would come or Christ would go to the cross. In Daniel 9, 24 through 27. He didn't understand that. He didn't know what that meant. He just knew that was the message. It's the 70 weeks prophecy. I'm not going to get into that this morning. But my point is, he didn't know the meaning of of all these things. But he searched and he inquired. And he was in the dark about how it would all play out. But we know how it played out. This is my point. We know how it played out. We know that 600 years later, 600 years later, Magi, Magi, who were descendants of Daniel, the, the, the wise men of Daniel's time, they searched the scriptures as well, and they determined when the Messiah was to come. And they made the trek to Jerusalem and Bethlehem, but they knew based on Daniel 9. And that's what Peter is saying. They're seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ was with them, this was Daniel's, excuse me, and this wasn't just Daniel's dilemma. All the other prophets had the same thing. They did not know how all these prophecies about Christ, of the Messiah, were going to unfold. They were kind of left in the dark on the other side of the cross. Notice in verse 10, the prophecy of grace that would come. They they were pointing to Christ. He calls it the prophecy of grace that would come. And and understand this. It's not that people in the Old Testament never experienced grace. They certainly did. Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord of God is compassionate and gracious. Jonah 4.2 says, I, the reason, God, I didn't go to, Tarsh, excuse me, go to Nineveh, but instead went to Tarshish, is because I know you're a gracious God and that you would, you would save the people and you show grace to the people in Nineveh. He didn't like the Ninevites and he didn't want God to show him grace, so he didn't go there. And he paid dearly for it. He ends up in the stomach of a big fish. But the point is, Grace was in the Old Testament. So they're prophesying about a grace that is to come. But it's not that they didn't have grace. They certainly had grace. In fact, they were saved by grace. In the Old Testament, they're saved the same way we are in the New Testament. They're saved by grace through faith. Genesis 15, 6 says, He believed the Lord, speaking of Abraham, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's by faith that we are credited with the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. We see it in Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous will live by faith. So they're saved by grace the same way we are in the, Old, in the New Testament. It, it, it was the same way in the Old Testament. 
And what's even more interesting to all of this is God, they're, they're counting on a sacrificial system where they watch lambs being slain. But God, in God's mind, it's not the lambs that are being slain in the sacrificial system. It's the actual atonement of Christ on the cross that would happen thousands of years later. Thousands of years later. In the New Testament, we're looking back at the cross. In the Old Testament, they were looking toward the cross. Though they did not know it was a Roman cross, they didn't know his name would be Jesus. They didn't know all of those things, but they're looking through this sacrificial system that God foreshadows what Christ is going to do on the cross. What am I trying to show you this morning? I'm trying to show you that the prophets in the Old Testament were the ones that we're all indebted to. And the reason we're sitting here is because they faithfully, in the face of all kinds of opposition, proclaimed these truths, paved the way. Our faith is not just some new idea that just came on the scene 2,000 years ago. It was way back thousands of years before with the prophets who received those messages. This is big picture stuff. This is big picture stuff for these people who are being persecuted. That you're not just believing some man-made, made-up religion. You're into something that's been around in the mind of God for a very long time, since the beginning of time. The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. When you see that Holy Spirit... The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit points to Christ. The Holy Spirit makes much of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ that was in them was the Holy Spirit, exalting Christ and pointing them to Christ. Inspiration of Scripture is the Holy Spirit inspiring these writers. Listen to this from 2 Peter chapter 1. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit of God. These weren't their own ideas. If these had been their own ideas, they would have known the interpretation of them. They would have known what they meant. But these were not their own ideas. They were carried along like a wind in a sail by the Holy Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Christ, which makes much of Christ. So they didn't make this stuff up. They didn't just record their own ideas or opinions. The Holy Spirit superintended the whole process, Old Testament to New Testament. And every word is written down exactly the way God wanted it written down. And so, one commentator said this way, Jesus is therefore not just the one whom the prophet speaks about, he is also the one who speaks through the prophets. You follow me? Jesus is not just the one the prophets spoke about, he is the one who is speaking through the prophets. In other words, who wrote the Old Testament? The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, to direct people to Christ. That has been the message of the entire Bible. It's a message of redemption. If you ask me what the overall meta-narrative of the Bible is, it's redemption from beginning to end. We got kicked out of the garden. One day we'll be back in the garden. Jesus will come. 
And you think of the, the apostles. The apostles didn't understand this either. They could not understand why the Messiah would have to suffer. In, in their theology, there was no room for a crucifixion of the Messiah. That did not make sense. That just did not make sense. That was not part of the theology for the Messiah. Messiah comes to reign. Messiah comes to be the king. The Messiah comes to throw off Romans. No, this Messiah came and was killed by Romans and Jewish religious leaders as well. But the point is, he was killed. There's no room in their theology for that. They too had trouble understanding. And Jesus on the road to Emmaus is talking to them and they're confused and it began to open the scriptures, Luke 24 says, to them and to explain the meaning of these things. Because you see, in the Old Testament, it talked about a suffering Messiah. You've read Isaiah 53. It talked about a suffering servant. But it also talked about a reigning king forever and ever and ever. They could not understand how can you have a Messiah that suffers and dies and a Messiah that reigns forever. How is that possible? That was not clear in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we look back and we say, oh, I get it. There had to be a cross before crown. There had to be suffering before there's glory. They didn't have that vantage point that you and I have. They would read verses that seem somewhat confusing, almost sometimes in the same verse. He reigns and he suffers. He reigns, he's rejected. He reigns and he's rejected by men. And that didn't make sense. And you and I read it and go, yeah. You and I will read verses in the Bible and we'll say, I wonder if that verse is referring to his first coming or his second coming. They didn't ask that question. <laughs> they thought there's only going to be one coming. And they're so confused when he dies on a cross. And they're so confused when the Messiah is, this isn't supposed to happen to the Messiah. Daniel 7 says he's going to reign forever and ever. There will always be a descendant of David on the throne of David. So that's why in Matthew 16, Peter says, you'll never go to Jerusalem and be taken captive by those religious leaders. Jesus says to him, you're thinking man's thoughts, not God's thoughts. And so, in the garden, of, in the garden uh, before he's arrested, Peter wants to take up arms and stop the whole thing. You're not going to do this to the Messiah. And so Peter's probably looking back a little bit embarrassed now. I was living on the other side of the cross then. Now I'm on this side of the cross and I understand better the cross. I understand better the need for the cross. So they had a hard time imagining two comings of the Messiah. In fact, some of their Jewish commentators say there are actually two Messiahs. One Messiah is going to suffer and one's going to reign. They came up with the two Messiah, which you can understand. They didn't have the full picture in the Old Testament. They didn't have the picture of the church in the Old Testament. That's a mystery, Paul says. It's a mystery that you'll have Jew and Gentile come together as one in the body of Christ. That's a mystery. That was not taught in the Old Testament. In Ephesians 3, Paul calls it 
This is a mystery, and I'm revealing it to you, Jew and Gentile together. We are looking back at the cross. We're on this side of the cross. Things are much clearer. We know more than they do about these issues. The youngest believer in this room knows more than some of those prophets knew about what actually happened. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's just saying, you need to understand the baton that's been passed to you. You need to understand that many of them suffered for it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. You need to understand that many of them, like you, suffered for this. They endured even though they did not see these things with their own eyes. Look what Hebrews 11:13 says. And he lists all these great saints of the past. And he says in verse 13, all these died in faith. Verse 13 of Hebrews 11, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But they saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they held on to them. They believed them. Eyes of faith, we hold on to these things. They're true. We don't know what they all mean. And then you go down to verse 32 and notice what happens to a lot of them. What, shall, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and, and Samson and, and David and Sam the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. In their day and time, they saw God do incredible things. It wasn't that there wasn't a, a near fulfillment of some of the prophecies that were made. They quenched the power of fire and escaped the edge of the sword from weaknesses, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They endured all of this and they endured it for us, endured it for us. There are, that's the legacy of our faith. And Jesus says to the disciples, blessed are you for you have seen these things. Blessed are your eyes because you get to see the whole puzzle. See, here's the point. You see the whole puzzle. All they had was pieces trying to piece it together. What does all this stuff mean? You've got the whole picture. And the question is, they had just had puzzle pieces to work with and they endured and they were faithful. The question for us from something like this is what are we doing with the puzzle? We got the whole thing. Are we just bored with it? Are we just bored with all this? Is it just ho-hum? Are we just so familiar with it that we don't want to investigate and study it and know it and let it fill our lives and our minds? Do we just let it be something that's just a nice, uh, nice thoughts to read, and, but we have no desire to get a better understanding of these things like they did, and they only had partial information? Are, are you interested in studying God's Word, or does it just, your Bible just collect dust between Sundays? See, we got the whole picture, and they didn't. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here. If they hadn't been faithful and available to God to be used. Secondly, notice the apostles preached. 
And you go down to verse 12 for this. In these things which now have, have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And something to think about here is now he's talking about the message being passed down from the prophets to the evangelists and to the apostles who taught it to us. And basically, the reason there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament is because, see the word Holy Spirit? It's the same Spirit. The same Spirit in the Old Testament that was speaking the Spirit of Christ that was within the, the prophets is the same Spirit that's within the apostles. That's why there's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Something, I, I mean, it's the reason you see New Testament writers always quoting Old Testament writers. Because the Spirit wrote them both. He orchestrated them both. The whole Bible fits together perfectly. And Peter gets up to preach. Go to back to 1 Peter. Back in 1 Peter, I guess you're already there. Chapter 2, he taught this message. And even after he got over the fact that the Messiah wasn't supposed to die, after he got over all of that and he's able, the Spirit, Holy Spirit indwells him, he gets up and preaches in Acts chapter 2. He preaches the message of repentance in Acts chapter 2. But here in 1 Peter 2, he says this, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. His body was a sacrifice. He gave his body as a sacrifice. That's what what verse says on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. 1 Peter 3.18, turn over to 3.18. It says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Why did Christ die to bring us to God? Why did Christ die so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness? These were not things that Peter wanted to see happen before the cross. He didn't want a dead Messiah. Now he's thankful for a dead Messiah, a living Messiah, who rose, a dead Messiah who rose from the dead and is alive. So, and so he's preaching that the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That became his message. And I'm thankful for a long line of New Testament preachers as well. I, we've got our Old Testament preachers. You got I, all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, and all the minor prophets. And you've got this long line of, of faithful New Testament preachers that have continually passed the message down. You've got uh, people like Paul and Timothy and Silas and uh, the church fathers and uh, Whitfield and Wesley and Luther and the Reformation preachers and and R.C. Sproul and all of them. Just thankful for all of them. It's just a a legacy. It's just a line of faithful truth tellers, as one person used that title. I thought it was a good way to say it. Truth tellers all throughout history. Preaching the message and sharing the gospel sharing the gospel. I was thinking this, I read this, heard this Jerry Rag say this recently, I thought it was really good. He says, talking about sharing the gospel, talking about this message. He said, Romans 10, 14, he says, how will they believe unless they have preachers? We have a gospel to preach. How are people gonna believe unless they have someone unless they hear the gospel message, and how are they going to hear unless they have someone who tells them the message? And he was talking about why 
why the light doesn't shine very brightly in the church. He says we, we're focused too much. He says stop focusing so much on what you're losing. We look at our culture and we think, oh, we're losing so much. He says we get self churches get self-obsessed with what we're losing, forgetting about what we have in the gospel. We are losing all kinds of things in our country. These believers in Peter's day had lost a lot. They lost their homes. They lost everything. They're losing everything. It's pilgrims and aliens. He says we're to preach the gospel no matter what. We want to see the grace of the gospel saving people. That's what we want to see. And we're not going to be able to do that if we're obsessed, if we're unobsessed with the truth. These preachers were obsessed with the truth and they proclaimed it and that's the reason it's been passed down so faithfully to you and I. I don't know. The world could end this year. I don't know. But it may go another hundred years. We don't know. Listen, we want to make sure we're preaching the gospel. That we're passing the baton to that next generation. That's the greatest priority there is that we have as a church, as we have as believers, is to preach the gospel to study the word because we've got the complete puzzle and to preach the gospel because they, unless they hear the message, unless someone tells them the message, Romans 10 says, how are they going to believe it? It must be proclaimed. And the church must proclaim it. And the reason our light does not burn more brightly than it does is because, as, as Jerry Ragg says, we get obsessed with ourselves and worried about what we're losing, freedoms, places, things like that. That should not be our obsession. And thirdly, thirdly, notice the end of verse 12, excuse me, verse one, verse 12. End of verse 12, he says, so it's chapter one, end of verse 12. Things into which the angels long to look. This is an interesting phrase. He puts at the end of this, Angels are created beings. You understand that. They were created by the Spirit of God and creation. I believe that's exactly what happened in, in Genesis. I believe they were created there. In fact, I believe they were singing, according to Job, at creation of the world. Angels were there. Somewhere in the white spaces between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, one-third of the angels fell and followed Satan. The reason I say it's somewhere in there is because in chapter 3, in chapter 2 and 1, everything is, is good and perfect. Chapter 3, things are not good and perfect. So the fall took place somewhere in there, and Satan is on the scene in chapter 3. So somewhere in the white spaces between chapter 2 and chapter 3, you have the fall of the angels. So you have redeemed angels, which are the holy angels, two-thirds remaining, and you have one-third who are demons. And so we're not talking about the demons rejoicing. We're talking about the holy angels rejoicing. And they saw the whole thing. 
They saw the whole fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, that tragic day when access to God was blocked, when man chose to follow Satan, when man chose to go his own way. And they saw God cast man out of the garden and put angels to guard it so there's no entrance. They saw that. And they've seen the whole drama of redemption since then, of, get, of, of redeeming mankind, of redeeming the elect of God, moving us back towards the book of Revelation, moving us back towards the Garden of Eden again. When everything will be perfect again. He says, the angels long to look, it means they're bending on tippy-toes, looking, watching what's going on. The reason is because they don't, they don't experience redemption. Holy angels don't need redemption. Unholy angels or demons can't be redeemed. Redemption is not something that they can experience, any angel can experience. Holy angels don't need it. Unholy angels can't experience it. And so they watch in fascination, longing to see this wisdom of God at work in redeeming mankind. They get excited about the gospel. That's what I said at the beginning. They get excited about the gospel. In fact, angels sing anytime a sinner repents. But angels are watching. They watch us. They watch us. They're very active. They're not just passive spectators. Very active in the Bible. You can just read it all over the place where these spirit beings, these angels were involved in the Old Testament, the law, all of those things in the Old Testament. An angel appears to Daniel and other, uh, other prophets. You see an angel appearing to, for the, involved in the birth of John the Baptist and the announcement of, of Christ and uh, temptation in the wilderness and uh, resurrection. Even in the garden, when I said he could call down a legion of angels if he wanted to. They're, they're involved in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the whole head covering issue. There says angels are watching. Angels are spectators, but they're also involved in ministering spirits, ministering to the saints. And what do you think an angel thinks when he looks at you and me and we're yawning in church and we're bored with this whole thing and we don't care about the gospel anymore and we don't care about sharing it anymore? What, and they're rejoicing over it. They're enthused about it. And we're not. Shouldn't the recipients of that redemption be more excited than the spectators of it? That's what his point is, I think, here. Something we need to think very hard about. Myself included, I don't want to stand up there and give a sermon that I have no wonder, no love, and no awe for. But I do. Unfortunately, I'm a sinner. And sometimes it's academic to me. And I have to repent of that. I have to repent of leaving my first love at times. All of us do. We're in the flesh and we have to be reminded in sermons like this that, man, we got... We've got all these Old Testament saints that were so faithful and willing to die to get this thing to us. And we have New Testament apostles and evangelists and others who have been in our life who boldly shared it with us. No matter what kind of opposition they faced, they brought it to us. 
And then we can't these spirit beings that we can't see, but we know they're rejoicing and they're trying to understand it and they're watching us and they say, wow, he used to be like that. Now look at what this redemption thing did to him. They don't understand that, but they, we do. We understand that. If you've been saved, you know, you know you've been saved. You know you've been changed. You know you've been regenerated. You know you're not what you want to be, but you're not what you used to be. That should be every true believer's testimony. I'm not there yet, but I want to be. I want to get there. By God's grace, keep changing me, God. Don't see much about angels a whole lot of times, but there is a song that I will not sing, but I will read some words to you from it. It's an old, it's, I'm sure Jim has heard this, I'm, and many of you others who are familiar with hymns have heard this, but it's written in the 1800s. Holy, holy is what the angels sing. Holy, holy is what the angels sing. There is singing up in heaven such as we have never known, where the angels sing the praises of the Lamb upon the throne. Their sweet harps are ever tuneful and their voice is always clear. Oh, that we might be more like them while we serve the master here. And then the refrain, listen to this. Holy, holy is what the angels sing and I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption story, this is it. They fold their wings for angels never felt the joys that salvation brings. (laughs) That's pretty neat. God, thank you for our time. Thank you, God, for this table that we partake of today. Thank you, God, for the reminder that it is to us of what Christ has done for us. May we sing of that redemption. May we sing and praise you for that redemption. And just like Peter told his persecuted readers, Let's just start with who you are in Jesus. Let's just start with that. Let's just start with praising him for your salvation. That in spite of everything are going on around you, that your, your name is in the book of life. That's what matters. Is your name in the book of life? We just praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.